Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Walter Chaw, the insightful, imaginative, and engaging senior critic for the Ontario-based web journal FilmFreakCentral.net since 1999. There are at least three collections of reviews and essays by the incredibly prolific Walter Chaw available to discover, as well as a monograph for the brilliant 1988 feature Miracle Mile, which gave him the opportunity to record commentary tracks for that Blu-ray release, as well as Cherry 2000. Currently working on the final touches of his book on director Walter Hill, which will hopefully be released in the fall and contains words by James Elroy, Larry Gross, and Edgar Wright, and art by Egyptian artist Ganzir. In addition to bylines in the LA Weekly, New York Post, Vulture, Decider, and New York Times, Walter spent a few years as VP of Operations at the Alamo Drafthouse in Denver and 15 years teaching film at the graduate and postgraduate levels at the University of Denver. Also busily working on a handful of other exciting projects he's unable to discuss in public just yet, Walter lives with his wife and two children in Denver. Supportive, funny, whip-smart, and friendly, it's a true honor to welcome Walter Cha to Watch with Jen. How are you doing, and how are you adapting to quarantine life? I'm doing well, you know, and I think I've a lot of people have made the comment that quarantine life is just sort of what they were doing anyway, because they're, they're introverts, and, you know, but, and yeah. uh, that's sort of true for me, but I do realize that, you know, it, you know, calling myself an introvert doesn't preclude, and I think not for most people either, doesn't preclude the need to go out sometimes. And, you know, I, 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 I realize I self-medicate by going to record stores and used bookstores and sure. reading and looking at all the titles, right? And, and like <laughs> referring through the crates and even just interact, those short interactions that you have with people who are also shopping or people who are working at those places was really therapeutic for me and restorative for me. Um, the, those are interactions that I crave. And uh, it's been very hard during quarantine not to have that. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing of stuff offline. That's very impersonal. Uh, it is. <laughs> you know, but actually being able to physically go through and put your fingers on things and look at things and talk to people, things that are kind of unimaginable now. Even when I said touch things in the world, I sort of was like, ugh, gross. No one yeah. wants that to happen <laughs> But, Bring your um, gloves. <laughs> exactly. And, and your sanitizer, if you can find it. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm doing well um, in the sense that, you know, I, I also have like some depression and anxiety. And when the world all of a sudden validates all of that, I feel a little bit better for feeling that way. <laughs> you know? Okay. Like, yeah. There's a reason. <laughs> that's exactly. And I no longer feel the shame that's associated no. with this. So, yeah. So long answer is I'm doing okay. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Yeah, I think short attention span is seeming to be a common thing right now. So I, when I am able to sit down and write, I'm very excited that I can finally do that. But yeah, that's even a challenge now. And I used to crave doing that. And like you said, I loved going to bookstores and looking at everything. And now it's just not something you can do at all. 
No, I really miss it. I really miss it. And and I thought this would be a really productive period for me. And I think a lot of people are realizing the same thing at the same time is that it's the opposite. It's very hard to write right now. Uh, You know, it's very hard to concentrate and nothing seems right. And all the schedules seem wrong. And it's uh, a strange time. It's a dislocating period for us. It is. Well, you are, though, one of the most prolific and thoughtful writers that I know. So what is your secret, Walter? And for anyone listening, I know we do have some film students. What advice would you give those who'd like to write the way you do? Oh, well, I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) my first piece of advice. Um, You know, writing for me has always been sort of therapeutic, I guess. I've been using that term a lot. It seems like I'm a basket case. I'm doing very well, Jen. Don't don't you worry. um, All right. No, you know, I, I, I'll be checking on you. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, I've thrown up a lot of red flags immediately. Um, no. no, but I, I, I write because if I don't write, then it feels almost like a physical thing. And it yeah. feels like it's a blockage yeah. that's physical, and and it's um, unpleasant, you know, and it feels itchy. It's almost like restless leg syndrome, but for my head. Um, and mm-hmm. if I'm able to get things out on on paper, um, it helps. And for, for aspiring film critics, and I hope um, you have a backup plan. There's not a lot. Of <laughs> have a day job um, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please have a day job. We've all had, and I think they should hear that maybe first, is that most of us, you know, most of the people that I know who are, are critics, even think people that you would think are super well-established and, and have thousands and thousands of followers, probably have a day job. In fact, do have a day job, but not more than one day job, and that, you know, we – all, but most of us do this as sort of a, uh, a work of passion or a work of compulsion. Um, it's not because very we're really paying all the bills with it, right? I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, I was very lucky for the last couple of years to be able to live off of that. But then recently I've had to go back and have get a day job just to be sure that we don't slip into insolvency. But, mm-hmm. you know, being able to write for two years out of 22, I think I've been doing this professionally. Here's my air quotes, professionally. <laughs> um is uh, for me like ten percent of the time. It is was an amazing privilege, and I felt extraordinarily lucky because I know how rare that is. And in fact, the time has gone out, and I look back on that you know time that that's just run out, sort of feeling like still lucky, still like oh my gosh, I, I am just really blessed to have had that period where I could just live on my writing. Um, but it, so, so it's unusual to be able to is my first thing. And the other thing I would say is that. The way that I approach writing film criticism is it's sort of like I, I, I approach it from the back door. I, I'm, I'm almost not ever interested in exposition. I don't really care how a story is told um, in, in terms of like the A, B, and C sort of structure that people are taught and speak in with that, that one, two, three act thing. Um, I'm more interested in how I feel during the course of a film, and then I try mm-hmm. to dissect my feelings uh, in in you know, essays afterwards. Um, so it's always like a work of personal excavation. I feel like if you read good critics, if you read and, or me, <laughs> separate, yes, you if you read are me, a good critic. Uh, oh, you know, I can never live up to your introduction. I'm already like flushed from that. But no. if, 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 if I'm, I'm successful at what I do, then at the end of reading me for a little bit, you get a better sense of who I am than you ever will get a sense of what the movies are or are about. Uh, Because it's, you know, if there's a hundred people watching a film, there's a hundred different films being shown. Very true. You you know, right. And and everybody's seen a different movie, even if we're in the same room together watching it. Right. You know, if you and I sat down, Jen, and we watched 
you know, seconds, or if we watch the conversation, if we watch something together that that's sort of acknowledged canon, we would have very different opinions about what we saw, even down to the details of exposition, which is why I think that's sort of slippery. You know, we've all had those yeah. conversations where we're like, well, the, he was obviously the mother. And like, what are you talking about? That's not even in the, yeah. <laughs> that's slippery. But what's more um, useful for me is to excavate the feelings that great art can, can inspire, even mediocre bad art, quote unquote, can inspire. And because that is useful to you. And um, when you go back, what is that great Latin uh, poet? I don't remember his name. When I'm being pretentious, I can never remember the, the right quotes. But oh, um, he said something about you can never uh, you, you can never go into the same river twice. And and it, oh, it's yeah. it's this idea that you go back right to these movies over and over again, and you see a different movie every time, and you wonder how that could be. And it's not the movie, right? It's you. And so mm-hmm. when you these snapshots and if I can leave behind this legacy where my kids one day when they're interested in what I write will be able to go back and chart year by year who their dad was during this period of time um, that's something that's just, that's that, that that's something beyond you know being able to make a living at it it's sort of leaving a legacy of of a snapshot of you at every point in time um, it's an incredible body of work I oh, always love reading it and I've been really <laughs> I've been really enjoying your Criterion series and mm. especially your great piece on a brighter summer day was just mind-blowingly good. So are you working on more Criterions right now? Can you give us a sneak preview of what's to come from Walter? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm working on um, a ton of Criterions right now. I, I, I'm in the middle of a piece on Hexon. Uh, okay. um, I, I think it's pronounced Hexen actually, which makes a lot more sense is super cooler. Uh, the uh, great Swedish silent film, I think it was 1922 that it came out. Okay. I, are, are you familiar with it? No, Next. this is new to me. Oh, okay. It's, uh, it, it, it is um, about witchcraft through the Ooh. ages. That's the subtitle. And there was a different cut of it um, at, at some point with William Burroughs uh, narrating it instead of intertitles. It's a silent film. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's done by a guy named Benjamin Christensen. And it it, essentially what it is is it's dramatizations of of ancient witchcraft texts, like witch witch hunter texts and and people that that, that were afraid of witches and things like that. Um, And and they they, they had woodcuts and they have all this stuff. And he'll show it. And then he'll dramatize it with the cast of actors and himself at one point playing the devil. And it is horrific. It really feels like some people's nightmares, of course, these cultural nightmares brought to life. Uh, and the whole thing plays extraordinarily hallucinogenically. And I use it often as sort of the prime example of how silent films are not safe, how old films are not these sort of musty. No. Um, yes, right? Antiseptic. No. They're not. It's atrocity. There's like sacrificed babies and there's nudity and witch orgies and there's devils and there's all all manner of atrocity from 1922 in this tinted um silent film and it's genuinely scary the uh Mm -hmm. William Burroughs cut is shorter and not as scary it's more takes more of a consumerist cant to it which is really weird but also fascinating but um, anyway yeah I I have a whole stack of criterions I'm sure they don't like me very much right now which I'm trying to work because you know, they're, they're, they're films. I don't think all of them are like you know the 
the best films ever made, but most of them are. And yeah. they really take, as you know, a lot of investment and time um, mm-hmm. to sort through them uh, if you want to do them justice. And I never honestly, like for A Brighter Summer Day, the, the great Edward Yang film that, that you mentioned that review, it took me literally, I think, seven, eight weeks to write just oh, because wow. I would have to walk away from it. And yeah, it was very personal. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. moving. Thank you. Um, it, it, uh, it was certainly, you know, meant as sort of a eulogy for my uncle because he sort mm-hmm. of grew up in that same period. And, um, but, you know, sort of to, to, to what, to my earlier ramble, it's, um, you know, writing, I don't know the purpose of writing at all, really, for unless it's to do that. And maybe that's what's made me sort of unhireable by major newspapers over the years is that oh, no. you know, I'm not really interested so much in consumer reporting. Um, as much as I'm interested in really understanding the sociology of not only the time of the film, but the time that in which we're watching it and understanding a little bit more about myself as I try, continue to try to be better. I don't have much more time to get better, I guess, before I'm just old, but no. um, there's a, uh, you know, that there's, I feel like I want to go to bed every night knowing a little bit more about myself and the people that I care for than I did when I got up. And so writing has been a really valuable way for me to experience you know, excavate that film with catalyst for it. Yes. I remember um, growing up, there was a professor who said that he, every few years, he didn't do it every year, would reread like Catcher in the Rye mm-hmm. or Great Gatsby or some of his favorite books. He said every single time, exactly what you mentioned. And it's so true. You approach it differently. Suddenly certain characters stick out more than they did before. You identify. And of course the book is the exact same thing it ever was. Uh, mm-hmm. But you are just approaching it with all these years and all your experience. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And I can't imagine how like important it is to go through, but also kind of emotionally draining it would be like you said you'd have to walk away from it because you do reach very deep and it makes the pieces incredible but it also must be kind of hard to do and i think i speak on behalf of all readers saying thank you for doing that because it's (laughs) yeah that's quite a legacy well you know i I should reciprocate reciprocate by saying thank you for reading it it seems almost masturbatory when i write that way sometimes you know i worry that (laughs) It slips into journaling and I'm asking people to look at my journal, which is like, you know, the most narcissistic and unpleasant thing that anyone can ask someone else to do. You know, for me, it's, um, it's always sort of a surprise that I'm read, to be honest. And it seems sort of like a disingenuous statement, but I don't imagine that I have much of an audience beyond, uh, my editor, the great Bill Chambers and me, we've had a great relationship, Bill and I, although we've never met in person. It was one of the wonders of the internet age. Yeah. Yeah. You know? We plan every year and it never seems to work out. We're going to rendezvous at the Toronto Film Fest or something, but we never have met. But, um, uh-huh. you know, I, I imagine writing it and I ma- and I know that he'll read it. You know, he gives me yeah. great guidance. And he makes me seem a lot smarter than I am. And then um, once we get through that process, you know, I give it to him. And it's, you know, Film Freak is sort of Film Freak Central is a labor of love for him. You know, he started it. He ran it for a few years before I joined. And it's been a labor of love for me in the sense that I look at it as sort of an archive of my thoughts and, yeah. and my evolution, if you will. And when people reach out and say, like like you, uh, and say mm-hmm. that you've read it, I'm actually kind of embarrassed and stunned. I feel like I didn't realize that, you know. And, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it's it's a gratifying thing, you know. Even with books and even with things that, that we put out into the world that's physical, 
I'm always sort of surprised if I'm approached with one and people want me to sign it or talk about it or something. I feel like, oh, yeah, I didn't intend that for public consumption, but thanks for, I guess, consuming it and not, you know, um, running away from it. Um, I completely understand. Um, I'm nowhere on your level, of course, but I've been writing online for, boy, like 14 years. And it's amazing to me. I've found that I can no longer picture the reader when I write or I get to in my head. So I just, I just write for myself basically, or to work through things or, I mean, some pieces are just, you know, shorter, but the longer ones are just, I don't imagine other people reading them. And then when they do, it's kind of shocking. You're like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, were you and, in and, my and, room? And like, how did you read right. that? Basically? Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly right. It feels like you've been a victim of voyeurism in a way. Although you <laughs> yeah. put yourself out there. You're the one that left the curtain open. You, you know yes, what I mean? Exactly. But, you know, and I think there, there's something really fascinating, a conversation to potentially be had there about the internet and technology, you know, that, that, that I think people have, we're, we're beginning to have even as far back as like with Edward Hopper and not with the internet, but with the sense that technology actually increases isolation and the sense of isolation rather than it encourages, you know, um, coming yeah. together like, like Jacques Tati's playtime has this really mm-hmm. wonderful sequence where essentially he's got four apartments with glass walls facing onto the street stacked on top of each other. And it's like, going into the vivarium section of your zoo where all the lizards are in like the tropical discovery or something. And you know, it's there for you to look at. And so when we're talking right now on Skype or when I do classrooms on zoom, that's literally what the future of isolate technological isolation that was imagined by the great painters and thinkers mm-hmm. and, and, and filmmakers. Um, and, and similarly, I think when we're writing these pieces and putting them out on the internet, it seems like all largely an anonymous thing. There's a hope, I think, that people will read and connect to it, but there's not an expectation of it. Not like you're giving a speech or even yeah. when you're publishing in a newspaper, it's physical. Someone's picking it up and looking at it. The internet's so easy to just not click on it, not just to walk on by. There's an endless amount of, of data and mm-hmm. products on there. You know, the last thing I can imagine is someone wanting to read a 5,000 words for me about a Taiwanese film that only a handful of people have ever heard of. So <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, you know, to to your larger point, it is it feels naked. It feels really yeah. vulnerable. Um, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad of it for my sake because I think I need to be. I think humility is a great um, a leveler. You know, it's mm-hmm. good to be brought down. You know, and reminded yeah. that things that we do are, uh, are 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 subject to other people's perspectives. And very um, true. Then you you resist becoming gatekeepers. I, I know in the past you mentioned hosting or introducing movies. It's something I love and I've done and it's been a joy because there's nothing like seeing them with an audience or opening people's eyes to a new world of cinema. Did you have any experiences that were particularly memorable when you did some hosting? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I've done a lot and, and you know, there, there's good and there's bad. I, I, I introduced... Um, the girl with the dragon tattoo, the originals of Swedish okay. Swedish version, um, yeah. at, in front of 800 people in an opera house in a really kind of a high sort of one percenter sort of area, you know, so you can uh. imagine the audience <laughs> attracted to it. And, and, you know, at one point, and, and I'm not a huge fan of, of the films, I want to tread lightly, I think it's... it's a, or the books more than the films. I, I like the David Fincher, strangely enough. I think that's an interesting. I did too. Yeah. Isn't that a wonderful beginning to a uh, yes. superhero mythology? But anyway, essentially it's a rape revenge movie. And at one mm-hmm. point I said to this audience of, you know, very 
upstanding fine people it was like you know hey this is the sort of movie that in the 1980s you'd be wearing an overcoat to see in Times Square with you know six other people in the <laughs> overcoats this is a rape revenge film and there's a great legacy of these there's Mr. on your grave there's Miss 45 there's a great legacy of rape revenge movies that are very valuable and interesting to the discourse but it's fascinating to me to look out today and see all 800 of you. It's three generations of women. It's a young woman, and it's a mother, and it's a grandmother. It's a complete selling circle here assembled in this really expensive place, paying X number of dollars um, to watch this. And I got almost booed off the stage. Uh, oh, wow. Of what it was. And so that that was a, not a good good one. Um, a good one, a better one. <laughs> Fine, I can handle that. It was okay. We we had a. Hey, you were being honest, and I appreciate what you were going for. Well, yeah, I, I think it's important to be for people to look at themselves and say, "Hey, what happened to movies at some point where things that were never permissible in American cinema suddenly became permissible?" You know, and I in have mainstream. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly right. You know, the first time that I saw Battle Royale, the, the, the great Japanese film, I had to order it from Mondo Video in Florida, the sort of underground bootleg place, and it came in a plain brown package on a VHS, and I wanted. <laughs> And I was, as I was watching, I was thinking, this is incredible. And an American cinema will never do anything like this. This is ridiculous. You know, these teenagers killing themselves. And not, you know, not not a decade later, they're the Hunger the, Games. Hunger Games, yes, exactly. It becomes the <laughs> YA phenomenon and a box office smash. And so, you know, what happened between those two things was 9 11, I think. And suddenly we become, as a culture, oh. very similar to Japan and experiencing sort of this atrocity over ma- major populated. Um, urban areas and we and our horror becomes more nihilistic and our entertainment becomes more nihilistic and the sources of our evil aren't like a sailor or the bad seed or de- the devil and the exorcist that becomes i don't know i don't it know your like, neighbor it comes us it yeah. Yep. It, yeah. The, the world becomes capricious and evil right um so anyway i think girl with the dragon tattoo is part of that that's symptom and so we ended up having an okay conversation um really good experiences being able to meet some of my favorite filmmakers, people that I grew up like really loving and, and you know, being able to introduce their films to audiences. And in some cases sort of almost being the first people, first person to, or the first of one of the first events to let them know that they're, they are appreciated because a lot of these people have done a few films, right. And then they've had their careers ended for one reason or another because those films didn't succeed, but, and it have been kind of unaware of, sort of the growing cult sentiment in, in the rear view around these movies. And a, 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 a major example is Rachel Talloway. I was able to bring her out once to do a screening of Tank Girl with her. And, you know, the audience was packed and people came in cosplay. Uh, you know, <laughs> one guy even came as a kangaroo. You know, there, there was oh, wow. an amazing outpouring. People had tattoos. They had like a bullseye tattoo from Tank Girl. And she, you know, Rachel at the end of it said, uh, I had no idea. This was the last movie I was really allowed to make because it just didn't do well. I didn't understand. I didn't realize, you know, sort of the the lasting cultural impact. And then, you know, I I spent some time with Michael Lehman, the director of Heathers, and I brought him out to show uh, Meet the Applebee's and also Heathers, of course, one of my favorite movies of all time. (laughs) And um, we designed a cafeteria lunch style dinner. We had uh, the the uh, mu- the musical version, who, which was passing through at that time, Colorado, and they came out and did some numbers from Heather's the musical before the show, oh, um, cool. and then he introduced it. And we did a Q and A, and um, and in the lobby, he and I played croquet through the, uh, ah. through, through the lobby. So I have a signed croquet stick by Mike from Michael Lamont, and 
you know, afterwards, as he was signing, his wife at the time, you know, I think they're still married, and, and, and he both expressed to me that they hadn't realized how important that movie was for so many people dealing with trauma, the trauma of school shootings that sort of really erupted after the Heathers. Yeah. Um, and people looking at that and saying, oh, it's the same all the time. The administration doesn't seem to understand. And yeah. people don't do the same stuff all the time. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's those moments that I really value. Um, Oliver Stone came out once because he liked a, a piece that I'd written about U-turn. And he oh, came wow. um, just for that, essentially. But I, I, I snuckered him into showing you turn on a th- rare 35 millimeter print of it that they weren't going to release except that Oliver Stone was coming and, you know, they'll do whatever he wants. And so <laughs> we showed that in natural born killers. And for you turn, I remember standing during the opening credit sequence, you know, we're standing sort of in the hallway leading into the theater watching it. He just wanted to check the quality of the print and he was laughing and laughing and laughing at it because he was, he thought it was so funny. It was sort of like the old stories of Tennessee Williams buying the first row opening night of all of his plays and sitting in the front row by himself and laughing. Like he's mm-hmm. the only person that thought those plays were funny. But, um, and, and so Stone <laughs> laughing, he's looking over at me every few seconds after laughing and chucking me in the ribs and, you know, and I felt like, <laughs> Man, this is kind of amazing. I hope I never forget it. Um, oh, that's you know, so cool. Yeah, introducing movies with James Elroy. We we started a series and became friends um, in the course of it, where he would pick a film noir and introduce it once a month. Uh, we, you know, he called it "In a Lonely Place" with James Elroy, and we uh, showed so many great movies on Thirty Five, including some that he'd been instrumental in restoring and get, getting to know Elroy that way. And uh, Oh, I feel kind of emotional now that the, those days seem to be past. You know, not only am I not working for a film theater any a movie theater anymore, uh, you know, the future of exhibitions sort of in question what that will look like. So, you know, those days are really dear to me to be able to introduce a movie I love. Watching the the hidden on thirty five millimeter with uh, Jack Shoulder in the audience, um, wow. you know, just meant a lot to me. Watching Miracle Mile on 35 a couple of times with, with Steve DeJarnat and uh, being able to do the Q and a and do signings afterwards. The, the, those things, I feel like I've come full circle in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, you know, as a depressed teenager, you know, when I was 16, I tried to kill myself and the way that I sort mm-hmm. of got, got back from it, it seemed like was watching near dark and miracle mile on, and Heather's on loop, you know, okay. I don't know why, what it was about those movies, but you know, it sort of inspired my writing of the Miracle Man monograph, but then to have it released on Blu-ray and then have it do the commentary and then have Steve out and show that movie a few times. Um, how many people get to say in their lives that they've been able to come full circle from a trauma in a way and re- revisit it and, you know, begin to maybe address other people's trauma? I mean, poor Steve, he had a little bit of a post-career in television and stuff. and uh, But, you know, he didn't get to make a movie after Miracle Mile. So... You know, um, it yeah. just feels like you're part of a larger conversation sometimes if you engage in film personally. Very true. And with James Elroy contributing to your Walter Hill book, is he writing mm-hmm. the introduction or the foreword? Yeah, he wrote the introduction. And, you know, I, I'm I, I'm the kind of stupid that don't, doesn't really know the difference between an introduction and a foreword. But I think it's the introduction. And um, okay. Larry Gross is writing a foreword, the uh, longtime screenwriter for Hill. He, he did, I think, four movies with with, with Hill um, has written the forward and Edgar Wright sort of wrote a dedication as well. Oh, for wow. It, which was lovely. So, it was a great yeah. guy. Yeah. What can you tell us about the Walter Hill book? Is it supposed to still come out in the fall or is that yeah, kind of know, with it COVID? Out last spring and then last fall and there's like a publisher issue and then there was like, you know, then I went back and said, well, since I have time, I'll mess with it. And then I 
you know, with so many things you take it apart, then you have to put it back together again. Um, we were planning on doing it in the spring and then the pandemic hit and, it, and it's already kind of a limited interest book. So we pushed it back again. Okay. So now I'm kind of looking at the fall and um, it's about 500 pages of un- un- unreadable, impenetrable direct. And I hope that people no. buy it from cover art. Uh, so by I'm the excited. Page, <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, and it, it sort of came by surprise. You know, I, I hadn't intended to write on Walter Hill. My next project was going to be a monograph on the Hitcher with Eric Red and, um, and uh, I forget, I'll remember the name later, but, you know, and, and the director, both of whom have agreed to do it with me. Um, and, and sadly, Rector Howard had agreed as well to, to participate, but because I'm so slow, you know, he passed away, sadly enough. But mm-hmm. um, but that was intended to be the next monograph. But then I watched, you know, as I was writing some pre- preliminary stuff for it, I watched The Warriors again, sort of his background, um, the theatrical cut of that. And I was sort of, uh, I needed to sort of begin to excavate my feelings about that. And so that turned into a book. And I realized during the writing of it how little I knew about Walter Hill, really, just despite how influential he was i've long appreciated as you have i'm sure his movies but mm-hmm. hadn't realized just exactly how extensive his filmography is and how many people going back you know to bob eldritch and 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 and, and peck and paw you know that he had intersected with and inf- and influenced backwards and forwards and steve mcqueen you know at the opening of um one of those films uh, dang it i it, with Paul Newman, it, it opens in a British prison that Walter Hill wrote the uh, screenplay for, the adaptation for. You see him in the prison library reading um, uh, Hard Times. And, and and then, of course, Hill's first film is Hard Times. And then I realized that there's like these tendrils where um, that really deserve to be unpacked. And then I found out that no one has written about Walter Hill in English, uh, a book length study. Wow. So I felt like, you know, of all the people, there are book studies of everybody. I don't want to name names because that seems like I'm throwing shade at them, but come on. Uh, <laughs> all those people are not Walter Hill. And, uh, you know, you just go back to like Hard Times and Hickey and Boggs and even the the Getaway. And then you go forward into his, you know, filmography proper, like The Driver and Warriors, all the way through to The Assignment with Sigourney Weaver, which I think was badly misunderstood and mishandled. Um, you have these themes and you have a portrait emerging of a, of an extraordinarily well-read man, extraordinarily sensitive man, who was dealing with progressive ideas around homosexuality, LGBTQ issues, all the way back in like Southern Comfort by casting an openly gay man as one of the National Guardsmen and maybe the only virtuous one of the bunch. Um, that's what the, the sort of sensitivity, obviously, to race relationships throughout 48 hours, of course, but Crossroads mm-hmm. as well. Um, that he was ahead of the curve on all of these issues, uh, and he does excavate some of them, albeit perhaps clumsily, according to the modern conversation in the assignment. But Hill is way ahead of his curve, and much more than just a macho filmmaker. Uh, when I when I got to visit Hill a few times, once in his study, he has uh, I got to be this close to his Emmy for Deadwood. But I uh, <laughs> his, his bookshelves, which I always look at when I visit people's homes were full of the Greeks and the the the, the great Roman writers and poets. Um, Heraclitus, by the way, is the guy who said, you never walk in the same river twice. Oh, okay. Uh, I just, my brain doesn't work anymore. But um, he, he, had, he was a great fan of Thomas Mann, and he was a great fan of comic books. He's an extraordinarily broadly read person, and that began to unpack more things as I was watching. In fact, you know, his whole 
later filmography, I think, can be impacted with a close reading of Poe's narrative on um, his essay on narrative, his explanation for the Raven. And so there's um, there are things in there that are hidden. And I really believed by the end of the process that what Hill really wants, hopes for by the end of his life is that somebody takes him seriously. Uh, and I hope I was able to do that for him. But uh, it sounds <laughs> like it. There's so much you just mentioned there that, oh, I'm so excited to read your thoughts on it. My gosh. Oh, yeah. If it never cool. publishes, I'll send you a PDF of it. Oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the what I was going to ask you is I always look forward to seeing which albums you're listening to when you oh. work. Yeah. Do you have any favorites or go-tos like for your background for writing? Wow, that's so hard. You know, that's actually a harder question for me to answer than my favorite film. I, I've thought about that a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to even write a music column in, in, in college. I was like, um, you know, I was really going to do that music journalism, music stuff. I really love it. And a lot of my collection came from that period. Like, I have all these promos and stuff from, you know, whatever. But I love Brian Eno, I, I love mm-hmm. Roxy Music. Um, I, I I love stuff like that to write to. You know, Brian Eno okay. especially gets into ambient stuff a lot. Um, newer stuff, I'm really digging uh, the National a lot. Mm-hmm. They, they seem to write to my uh, morbid self-loathing and, and, and depression. <laughs> you know, he speaks directly to that. In fact, I was shocked that Matt Berenger was not older than he was. We had his brother out with that documentary that he did about the National. Oh, that was uh, so good. Yeah, it was so yeah. good. We flew him out to show that movie along with Vinyl Me Please, the subscription service, when they were dropping a National album. We did, that was another great public show that we did. Um, gosh, I, I'm a child of the 80s, mm-hmm. so I love all that stuff. I love the period where D- David Bowie intersects during that period um, a lot. Um, even m- m- more so than he did, I guess. He didn't love that <laughs> during that period. Talking Heads is a big one. Tom Waits is somebody that I uh, understood instantly as a younger man. And Neil Young more recently, I seem to understand. I, mm-hmm. I, I guess it all seems pretty basic, uh, the stuff that I like. I also like, no. <laughs> you know, I, I do like... It's good stuff. Things, yeah. I, I really love Phoebe Bridgers. I think the album that she released last year, uh, Lost in the Alps, I think. I think I have it right behind me somewhere. Um, is uh, just extraordinary. Just, you know, especially for a young person to reach that level of depth. You know, I think of John Keats a lot of how this young man who's going to die before he was, I think, 24, uh, wrote poetry about love and longing that 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 I would expect from a 50 year old looking back on his life, you know. Um, but yeah, there, there's certain times that people have a voice that's really compelling to me. Um, but yeah, go tos I guess are for writing in any way or Brian Eno, um, Clint Mansell's soundtracks scores. Me too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, you know, I, I think it was Errol Morris said this about uh, Philip Glass once. He said that. Philip Glass's oral wallpaper. Um, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, I, you know, I have the Candyman soundtrack. I'll put that on sometimes and play it. But that generally produces sort of turgid writing, so I try not to do that. But, <laughs> yeah, the, the, there are certain go-tos. I, I tend not to listen to classical music on vinyl for some reason, but everything else is, is open season. Yeah. Cool. Well, I was going to ask you what you've been watching lately. It sounds like you put some stuff on sort of as background, but is there anything good you'd like to recommend? Oh, I, you know, before I started back into an essential services job, I was watching 
three movies a day or four movies a day. I've already watched 400 movies this year, you know, and, okay. um, but very few in the last couple of weeks. But anyway, um, so many great things I've discovered. There's a great, I wish I remembered who directed it, but it's a movie called the Eagle and the Hawk. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It you was know. like New Zealand or. I, you know, I don't believe it was. You know, I, you know, I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of the Eagle and the Shark. Oh, right? that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. okay, so yeah. no, I'm yeah. different. Yeah, it, yeah very <laughs> close, but, but, but different. Um, no, Eagle and the Hawk is from 1934, I think. It's a uh, Cary Grant, Frederick March film. It's about World War One. I. I was sort of inspired to seek it out because of all, there's a lot of like li- listicle pieces after 1917 got a lot of attention about great World War One films. And Eagle and the Hawk was one I had never seen. It is just extraordinary. Cary Grant is not a comic performer. That's a dramatic role. Uh, Frederick March is a remarkable. It's essentially about PTSD from World War One flyers. Frederick March plays a March plays a man who's who's an, an ace and he's done a lot of bombing runs and everything, but he's completely destroyed by the idea of killing others and things like that by the end of the piece. And Cary Grant plays sort of the young guy who's coming in and rakish and doesn't really understand the weakness that's being shown by this older person that's so highly regarded and sort of this discussion of masculinity and violence and war and trauma wow. uh, that I was very surprised to see. Um, I've had the opportunity to go through and watch as many Jean Arthur movies as I can because, you know, I, I love I was, her. Oh yeah. my God. You know, sort of ex- excavating my feelings about Jean Arthur. And it's not that I have a crush on her exactly. It's that I want to be her, you yes. know, there's, she's like so amazing, but there's a her comedy confidence. that did, with, oh my gosh, confident and funny. Yes. And flip. I mean, so many of her movies, you know, at least five or six of them that I saw during this period have her be getting fired from her job. And the way she responds is like, hey, bucko, I'm fired, it looks like. You know, she's like, just. <laughs> um, but there's a great comedy that she did, romantic comedy with John Wayne called uh, Lady Takes a Chance. I think that was in the early 1940s, perhaps. And I think she's even like a little bit older than John Wayne in that movie, but she plays this sort of. Are you familiar with it? Before I t- no. I, okay. No. Yeah, she plays sort of this um, cubicle worker who decides to take a chance and take a vacation, a bus trip out west to yeah. look, look, see a rodeo and and experience, you know, the uh, undiscovered countries. And she goes out west. I think it might even be Colorado, and she meets John Wayne, a rodeo guy, <laughs> and they have. One whirlwind night together, they go drinking. There's a bar fight. There's all this great stuff, and she's you know attracted and repulsed. It is ex- extraordinarily horny movie. It's extraordinarily <laughs> funny and bright, and, and it's it's short. One of the great things I've noticed about movies before the 1940s and during the during the studio era, they were pumping out so many movies. Some of them are an hour and ten minutes. It's amazing yeah. movies, and um, yeah, I love that. I I, I watched. I realized I'd watched it before halfway through, but you know, not enough to remember it was sudden fear. The great Joan Crawford film excellent. with Jack Talent as, you know, yeah. have you seen that? Yes. You, excellent you know? Yeah. Oh my God. It's so good. <laughs> um, there's so many noirs. I was able to catch up house by the river, the Fritz Lang movie. That one. Um, I don't know. Oh God. It's so perverse. Okay. And you will love it. Okay, cool. Uh, not, not, not to say that you're perverse, but to say that it's so interesting that you'll love yeah, it. Yeah, um, no, I love noir. Uh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's about a writer that's super narcissistic that may have trouble controlling his strangling tendency. Uh, it's so good and okay. beautiful and well well, well done. Um, yeah, so, so I guess Eagle and the Hawk, Lady Takes a Chance, big recommendation. Sudden Fear, House by the River, if you've not seen it. 
I've uh, been going through um, the uh, list of mo- foreign movies you must see that mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese put together uh, yeah. years ago. It's been a revelation. I would recommend every single movie on there that you've not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and a movie that's not on there that I saw for the first time, and I, I'm going to get the name wrong. I hope you guys will do a Google or, or you know, fix it and or whatever. I, I don't know how this works. I'm not technological, but um, <laughs> there's, I think it's called the Contract Killer. Are, are you or killing no. or murder? Killing by contract. Killing oh, by murder by contract. Murder by contract. Thank you so, so much. Good. Yes. So good. So good. And it's yeah. the movie that uh, Scorsese, right, has said was the number one influence on all of his work, all of his work. Yeah. And you know, you know he's a taxi driver. You understand where that came from. You see a lot of the sociopathy in his male characters and. Mm-hmm. Even Raging Bull, I think. Murder yeah. by Contract. Yeah, it's it's a singular movie. I've never seen another movie like it. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting educational time for me, you know, uh, yeah. to, to, to catch up on these these giant holes in my education. Oh, likewise. I know. I try to watch more new things than repeat viewings. But, yes. yeah. So, right now, it seems like I'm kind of going back and rewatching some comfort movies that I haven't seen in forever. So that's yeah. been nice as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's self-medication, I think. Right. Therapeutic, as you were I, saying. I, I, yeah. I've been doing a family film series with my kids and stuff. And, you know, a, a lot of the movies are, you know, I want to give them the broccoli, the historically important stuff, but the, a lot of it's, you know, the pie and the cake and stuff. It's like, yeah you know demolition man together as a family the other night which <laughs> you know of course the same screenwriter daniel waters as heathers and batman returns and stuff but it's so prescient now they don't touch each other they, they have sex yeah. through virtual reality you know and it's amazing it's really extraordinary in so many ways there's and no fun. toilet paper either so there's no toilet paper it fits the quarantine know. no just kidding <laughs> i was wondering at the beginning of the quarantine whether we'd, not, we'd have to finally figure out the three seashells but uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and watching John Woo flicks, you know, with the kids for the first time, like The Killer and Hard Boiled. Um, Two of my favorites. Yeah, the, those are actually very, my favorite John Woo's. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they're so good. Have you seen Bullet to the Head? Yes. The John Woo, yeah. yeah. It's like his Hong Kong career is just extraordinary. Um, I know. You know, and we share the same family name, uh, Zhou, as Chow Young Fat, so Zhou oh, Ren wow. Mm-hmm. So cool. I like to say we're distantly related, but there's really only 12 last names to go between two and a half billion people. So we're probably not related. <laughs> oh. I like to say that. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? So, yeah. I'll own it. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants to be related to Chow Yun Fat. I mean, and you have royalty. a bigger, exactly. you have a bigger claim on it. I say, go for it. Yeah. I don't know. It's like being named Smith. I'm like, I, I'm really, <laughs> no, you're not. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> So yeah, it, it's um, I don't know. I I think for me, comforting though is finding new, um, great things. You know, and it used to fill me with anxiety that I'd never be able to watch all the movies I want to watch, and that's still true. But rather than anxiety now, it's sort of the sense of like hope that yeah. in, dis- in discovery, right? Um, yeah, seeing the right thing at the right time. Yes, yeah, and that you'll never run out of those things. You never no. will. You know, every era is a deep well, and you reach into it, and you will pull up something that you've never seen before. And it's really kind of an extraordinary gift that this vast history has given us of a film of art history. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a great comfort to know that there's always that, if there's nothing else. Very true. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on Watch with Jen and sharing your wisdom. It's always so great to 
read your work and now talk to you. So I really appreciate it, Walter. Well, thank you so much for your kind words and your generous words. I mean, I, I think wisdom immediately translates to my mind as rambling, but I, I know that. No. <laughs> thank, you for, uh, thank you for seeing that. And thanks Thanks again for having me. I, uh, I'm always flattered when I'm when when asked, so I appreciate oh, it. Oh, of course. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Thank you. Well, you have a good rest of your day, Walter. You too. Be safe. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends.